Hello and welcome to the Combat and Classics Podcast. This is Brian Wilson in Dallas, Texas. Shiloh Brooks at the University of Colorado in Boulder. And I'm Jeff Black at St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland. We are continuing our work. Our, i got to figure out a good metaphor or tie-in. There's a joke in here somewhere about our, our march up of country. the ascent. Yeah, yeah, our march go. up country um, of Anabasis, which means ascent. So we're kind of using the same word so well users uh, or listeners you guys can hit us up with a good joke on this one because i'm coming up blank um so we're working through xenophons the anabasis of cyrus this is our second xenophon work that we've worked through uh we've got the education of cyrus in the can if you want to go back and look at some of our back episodes we are in book three and to catch you up so far what we have is that cyrus uh who's a different cyrus than the education of Cyrus, but Cyrus forms an army, marches up country to usurp his brother Artaxerxes' throne. And what happened in the last book is that Cyrus gets killed in his assault on Artaxerxes, and then Tissaphernes, who uh, was notionally an ally of Cyrus in the initial piece but sold him out, uh, convinces the remaining Greeks, the remaining 10,000 Greeks, that they will be given safe passage out of Persia by the king. This turns out to be a ruse uh, because Tissaphernes invites all of the leading Greeks to come without their arms, at which point he kills them. Uh, so hilarity ensues, and uh, the 10,000 Greeks now have to figure out a way to survive in deep inside of Persia and return to Greece. And so in this upcoming book that we're going to talk about, we have this weird kind of appearance of Socrates the Athenian showing up and talking to Xenophon. We have Xenophon basically kind of taking charge of the Greek army, kind of, uh, but they elect new leaders. Xenophon gives a couple of pep talks. Uh, we learn about Xenophon's dream and then the march back down the ascent begins um, with some degree of uh, failure initially, but uh, quickly they are adapting to their circumstances uh, with Xenophon kind of taking the lead on how to innovate both formation and the type of technology they're using. And it seems like there's, there's a little bit of a glimmer of hope now, both from the motivation of the troops as well as a plan on how to execute it. So that is kind of book three, and I'm sure I'm missing parts, but we'll fill that in as we go. But uh, I'm gonna turn it over to uh, Jeff, and Jeff's gonna ask us an opening question. Yeah, thanks, Brian. A glimmer of hope seems right, uh, and it's surprising that there's a glimmer of hope because the Greek army was essentially a headless corpse at the end of book two. Uh, all the generals had been killed, and, and book three begins with this very bleak picture of um, all of the Greeks just lying down on the ground where they are. They don't even bother to go back to their tents or go find their arms or properly bunk for the night. They're so despairing, they lie down on the ground and they can't sleep. And uh, then we get... Uh, the appearance of Xenophon, finally, he's been mentioned a couple times in the previous books, but uh, the appearance with his backstory of why he came to Persia uh, and a story about a dream he has. And after that story and after the story about the dream, uh, he takes command and he starts to give speeches and he essentially reanimates the headless army 
um, he regrows a head for the army. Um, and he is chosen one of the generals to replace the generals who were slaughtered by the Persian treachery. Um, so I'm interested in uh, why Xenophon takes the leadership role that he takes at this point and how he does it. Um, and the two things, it seems to me, are connected because we get told uh, Xenophon's backstory, why he came to Persia. We get told about this dream he has on this terrible night when none of the Greeks can sleep. And then Xenophon says, um, and here I'm reading from Book 3, Chapter 1, uh, Paragraph 13. One can consider what sort of thing it is to see such a dream through the events that happened after the dream, which were as follows. And then we get this long story about how Xenophon gives these three speeches and essentially reanimates, rebuilds the army. So it looks like the basic idea of at least the first part of book three is um, how Xenophon puts together the army again, helps to shed light on why he does this, why he takes the leadership role he takes, and why, in fact, he came on this expedition in the first place. And so I guess maybe um, we can start um, from the beginning here. Uh, the backstory that we get, um, book three, chapter one, paragraph four, um, is a story about uh, a certain Xenophon uh, asking Socrates whether he should go to Persia. What are we supposed to get from this story? Well, I mean, one thing it does is it shows the privilege of place that Socrates has in Xenophon's life. Mm. Xenophon isn't asking his friends. He apparently is not asking his parents, <laughs> his father. And so I think the first thing to, to um, notice is there's a great tension in the story because it both, it, it both elevates the place of Socrates in Xenophon's life, but then it seems immediately to demote Socrates because what actually ends up happening is that Xenophon takes counsel with Socrates. Socrates tells him it could be dangerous to become a friend of Cyrus because um, Cyrus uh, seems, it says here, eager to join the Lacedaemonians in making war against the Athenians. And you may not want to join a guy who is making war against the Athenians. And so he says to Xenophon, go to the Oracle at Delphi and um, take counsel with the God about the journey. But then Xenophon goes and doesn't ask the oracle what it appeared as though Socrates told him to ask, which is, should I go? He merely says, um, to which one of the gods should I sacrifice and pray in order to make the journey um, in the noblest and best way? And so he, he both seeks Socrates' advice, but then doesn't do what Socrates says. Mm -hmm. So it's, I don't know what you guys make of this, but I think Xenophon's trying to say something about his relationship to Socrates. It's very complex. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is it something like we shouldn't expect like a pure Socratic approach that Xenophon has, that it's going to be Socratically influenced, but not necessarily exactly what you would expect from a devoted follower of Socrates, but there's going to be a little bit of carryover in terms of approach. And I, I what struck me specifically was later on, um, right around where, where Jeff was pointing us to in paragraph 13, that... And this is this is me also St. John's fanboying a little bit. Is he, he starts with an opening question. Why am I lying here? 
you know, and it, it's 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 not immediately coming to the conclusion that that action is right or wrong, but an exploration of why am I doing this? Yeah. And then he continues in that vein, you know, through that paragraph where he asks himself questions and comes up with answers. And so that's maybe where the divergence happens between uh, like a purely Socratic approach or what we call that, you know, purely Socratic approach, which if you read Plato closely, it's, you know, what we associate with a Socratic approach isn't really necessarily a Socratic approach because um, a lot of times Socrates does explain stuff and not really ask questions. He starts that way and then says, well, this is what this is. That, here's the answer um, or here's a potential answer. But it's at least starting from that idea of let's ask ourselves some questions. Why am I lying here? Um, from what city do I expect a general who will carry out these measures? What age am I waiting for? You know, and, and right. so he's asking himself these questions to try to figure out the proper actions to take. And then there's an immediacy to this, right? This isn't a, you know, an Aristotelian approach of, well, I'll find out if I'm happy when I die, or maybe it is, but the death is potentially imminent. Mm -hmm. So how do I, you know, maximize my virtue uh, in this very short time period that I potentially have to do so. Yeah, that that's a good way to start, Brian. Uh, at least it seems so to me because um, the passage that you point to in 13 and 14 there in those paragraphs, um, it looks kind of like he's playing both sides of a Socratic dialogue. He's asking the questions and he's giving the answers. And the series of questions and answers lead to the conclusion that he ought to lead. Right, that there's no one else, there's no other um, source of hope than him himself, right? So that um, makes me think that whatever Xenophon's departure or disagreement, uh, departure from or disagreement with Socrates is, um, he's still um, a Socratic in the way he's thinking, at least, right? And we've seen some signs of that earlier with the, the pointed questions he posed to the Persians that exposed that they were lying, right? Um, you know, or his interest in seeing Cyrus right before the big battle to see what he would say. Um, so he does look like a Socratic, but it does look like there's a departure from Socrates. He at least doesn't seem to regard it as necessary to spend the rest of his life with Socrates, which some in the Socratic circle said that that's all they wanted to do, right? So um, why don't we look a little closer at the advice that Socrates gives him um, to see maybe where the departure is or to what extent it's, it's a departure. Um, what did you make of the advice that he go to Delphi and take common counsel with the god there? What is Socrates actually telling him to do or thinking is going to happen? Yeah, I don't even know what taking common counsel means. I mean, yeah. that just means like, let's just sit around and talk. Because he doesn't say, ask him whether you should go. Right. That only comes out later when Socrates blames him because he did not first ask whether it was more advisable for him to make the journey or to remain. But that's not what was said at the beginning. Right, right. Um, and it is the same verb that we get earlier when Xenophon takes common counsel with Socrates, right? So Xenophon gets the letter from the guest friend. And guest friend, by the way, he might not know Proxenus very well, right? It's just a familial connection. He gets this letter that says, come on out to Persia, you'll make a lot of money. And he goes to Socrates first and says, hey, I got this letter, presumably. What do you think I should do? It looks like um, 
he must have told Socrates that he planned to go. Right? In other words, Socrates' um, advice is um, based on the, it's premised on the thought that Xenophon's going to go. Right? And if that's true, then the question for me becomes, did Socrates think that the thing he asked Xenophon to do had any chance of changing Xenophon's mind? Um, and I think there, Cyrus, uh, you know, uh, Shiloh's suggestion, um, there's, there's no, there's nothing in what um, Socrates tells Xenophon to do that I think would, would point towards the possibility that Xenophon might change his mind. Right? Does that seem fair? Yeah. I mean, I think this is powerful because I think, you know, there's no, it's no secret that there's something, there's some contest between the philosophic and political life that Xenophon is gesturing in the direction of here. And I, I mean, my sense, this is just from my own like internal psychology, but I, mm. I, my sense is that Xenophon is compelled to go. Like it's not a question for the of the philosophic life or the political life for him. He's gonna do it. There's something in him, and I think I felt this. Maybe you all have. Where you're just you may know it's not wise and it's not what all the smart people would do, but you're gonna do it because you're compelled to do it. And and we should be clear. The thing that is incentivizing him to go, that's explicit in the text, is becoming a friend of Cyrus, a friend of Cyrus, and so. Mm -hmm. It could be that curiosity compels Xenophon to go. What he, He's a friend of Socrates, and Socrates is the height of a human type. Well, Cyrus might be the height of a different kind. And so I, I don't say that this mission is, is philosophic in character, but I can imagine Xenophon saying, I want to test this for myself. What is a man of Cyrus's um, ambition? I've never been in the company of such a man. What does that look like? And it's mm -hmm. it's irresistible, both on the basis of curiosity and if he has a shred of political hope or ambition for himself to be tutored under such a man. Maybe he hasn't been fully uh, cured of his disease by Socrates, but to be tutored under such a man is is almost irresistible. Mm -hmm. um, and so I can I can sympathize with him, um, although I can't make much sense of Socrates' approach. Yeah. Well. Let me let me try this out in terms of Socrates' approach, and you guys can tell me whether um, it seems to hold water. Um, it looks to me like the disagreement has to do with um, how to use the visit to the um, oracle at Delphi, how to use the visit to the oracle of Apollo. Um, I think to take common counsel just means um, be able to say that you went there and consulted the oracle about this. Yeah. <laughs> and and that seems to me maybe it would um, uh, convey some political cover, right? You know, so if, uh, you know, say it's during the Cold War and you get a letter from a Soviet uh, politician, you know, an American gets a letter from a Soviet politician saying, why don't you come over and, and hang out, right? And you go talk to your, your friend who's going to advise you and the friend says, well, you know, this is a pretty politically risky move. Um, maybe there's some political cover you can get. Uh, for yourself. So it looks to me like that might be the thought. And then the disagreement between Socrates and Xenophon, it seems to me, turns into a disagreement about what kind of question would provide the political cover um, necessary. And it looks like Socrates thought that Xenophon had to ask, uh, should I go? Um, and Xenophon instead asked, uh, you know, which God should I sacrifice to in order to, um, 
go the noblest way. But that and that really doesn't provide political cover at all. It's the thing, and that's yeah. why if, there could still be a disagreement between them. Whereas Xenophon's like, I don't let them, you know, let them know that I, it was me who decided. Mm-hmm. I mean, and of course, in the background here, Socrates himself is about to be put on trial. Mm-hmm. I mean, is about to be, and so you know, you can think, well, Socrates is saying you got to get out of here. This is a good option for you. I think there's more to it than that. I think Xenophon is genuinely curious about the thing, but it also seems like. Xenophon, I mean, would you say, Jeff, there is a disagreement here insofar as Xenophon has to know what Socrates has in mind with the political cover option, and Xenophon seems to disagree with him about the need for it or the nature of it? Yeah, I think uh, the disagreement has to be either in the need for it or in the nature of it. And you might say, well, if, if a god tells you this is a sacrifice you need to make the journey well, then that's implicitly the god's approval of the journey. Right, so I could maybe see an angle from which the two kinds of questions are equivalent. Yeah. Um, the other thing that occurs to me is that uh, Xenophon might not intend to return to Athens ever, um, and Socrates might not understand uh, that desire not to return because apparently Socrates thought it was not necessary to leave Athens. Right. So there might be a way in which these uh, two different applications of Socrates advice points to uh, two different views about the life that each of them is going to lead. Socrates very short life after this point and Xenophon's longer life after this point. Um, So there might be a disagreement there, too. I'll just throw this little aphorism. Uh, about advice that I always liked. And this is from Taleb's Bed of Procrustes, but mm. he, he just has this lovely little aphorism that I, I kind of like, which is when we want to do something while unconsciously certain to fail, we seek advice so we can blame someone else for the failure. <clears throat> so I just wonder how much, you know, Xenophon's fear of going and hanging out with Cyrus and failing is behind him agreeing with Socrates to go talk to Apollo. Mm-hmm. So he can just be like, bah, you know, I, I asked Apollo the best way to go and Apollo told me this way and it didn't work out. So it's really Apollo's fault. It's not my fault. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's something to that. Um, Brian, there's a detail that supports that. If you look at how Xenophon reports his question uh, this is at paragraph six of book one, of book three, chapter one. Uh, he says, um, to which of the gods he should sacrifice and pray in order to make the journey he had in mind in the noblest and best way, and after faring well to return safely, right? So we get this kind of, I'd say it's threefold, it might be fourfold, but uh, the journey is supposed to be good for him, it's supposed to be noble, and it's supposed to be um, safe, at least that he's going to make the whole journey, including the return, safely, right? Um, and Socrates claims that uh, he asked about how he might go in the noblest way, right? In other words, he drops the question about the good and the question about safety. And so it looks like uh, Socrates' diagnosis of what's going on is Xenophon is too attached to the noble or he's not putting the noble in its right place with respect to the good and, and safety. And that would go together with actually really needing some reassurance from the gods uh, that his trip's going to work out, right? Um, so yeah, I, I like that suggestion a lot. I think I think there's a detail that points in that direction. Another question I have is, do we know 
from Xenophon kind of describing his motivations here and then a little bit later on, if he knew there was going to be a war involved? Like, was he just planning on going and hanging out in court along the coast with Cyrus and chilling on the beach and, you know, learning a little bit of politics, you know, at Cyrus's knee? Or was, you know, Proxenus like, we're going to go campaigning soon, so you want to get in on this? Because um, yeah. it could be fun, adventurous, lucrative, some combination of those three things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because when, when Shiloh was, you know, kind of talking before about what, what could motivate, you know, somebody to do this, um, you know, it, it certainly resonated with me who, you know, didn't have to go to Iraq in 05 and basically threw a little bit of a tantrum because I was like, wait, I'm not, I can't go to Iraq or Afghanistan. Are you kidding me? Yeah. I have to, I have to go to one of those. Why do yeah, you have yeah. to go? Well, because, cause I have to like, yeah. what, what, what is, how does that not make sense to you? Oh, yeah. uh, so when yeah. he's, when Xenophon's talking to Socrates, I, I've, you know, found myself in a similar position of not, should I go to Iraq or Afghanistan? But it's like, what's the best way to go to Iraq or Afghanistan? Because I'm going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and you know, Brian, he doesn't really say, I mean, in the letter, it's not said that come and do war with me. It's make come and be a friend of Cyrus. And then he, but then there's this interesting extra thing, which is uh, his friend says that, that he believed Cyrus to be better for himself than his fatherland was. That is to say, the guy seems to say, you need to, to be with this man. Hmm. Um, he's better for you than Athens. Now it doesn't say better for you than Socrates is, <laughs> you know, which I think is debatable, but, and so that's why I think there's some pedagogical, intellectual i mean in addition to the adventure and presumably the gain i think xenophon is is tempted by the friendship of cyrus and and what it might be like to to experience the tutelage of this man since his best friend or a close friend at least maybe not his best friend but a close friend is saying he's better for me than than uh than athens and so and then when he gets there um you know jeff you mentioned earlier well was he going to stay was he ever going to go back to athens the friend and Cyrus both encourage him to stay. So they, they both, and so you wonder, is, is Xenophon like, well, this is great, I'm gonna head on back. Or is he like, oh, they're encouraging me to stay. This is exactly what I wanted. You know, it's just, it's just, yeah, yeah. It's just unclear. But then it says, Cyrus said, as soon as the campaign was over, he would at once send him back. Then you have to wonder, is Xenophon like, no, no, don't, don't send him back. <laughs> or, okay, then I'll get back to Socrates and this will be exactly what I wanted, a study abroad in my education to like see the world. Um, and then, of course, Cyrus lies to him and says that the expedition is against the Sidians, but Xenophon doesn't know that that's a lie at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that's where we leave off. So what his motives are just are entirely unclear to me. Maybe it won't come out until until later in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I guess all I have to add to that is the remark at the beginning of four um, in this book and chapter that Xenophon says he he followed along even though he was neither a general nor a captain nor a soldier, yeah. right? Which suggests that he didn't understand his contribution to be a military one. Whatever he was either getting or gaining, it wasn't in the realm of um, military experience. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with this question. If um, Cyrus is better uh, for Xenophon than Athens is, the prospect of returning to Athens after having been with Cyrus would be 
a decision you know that you wouldn't make it would it would be a, a choice of a, a, a lesser good for in in the place of a greater good so yeah it's uh it's true that we only have hints and it's hard to put them together um and maybe it'll become clearer um, shiloh didn't you bring up uh lafayette in one of our recent pods that we recorded and i'm trying to yeah. remember I'm trying to remember because if, if my Revolutionary War history is accurate, then Lafayette didn't have any official capacity. He was just mm -hmm. kind of hanging out with Washington. Mm -hmm. You know, he was not a commissioned, you know, officer in the American army. He was just like, no, hang out. Like, yeah, that seems that seems cool. And, and so we have a similar kind of situation here where this kind of assumed, you know, nobleman from Greece, somebody that can afford to just take off and go to Persia and hang out. Uh, just, you know, sits, hangs out by Cyrus and, you know, hilarity ensues. Yeah. The, uh, the analogy would be even stronger if Lafayette were leaving some um, difficult political waters at home, right? <laughs> Which I, I have some vague memory that that was true about him, too. Um, yeah. And then finally, uh, if Lafayette had no military experience when he came to America, Right, because I think that's what the the claim is here. Although maybe no military experience is a little strong, because I think all the Athenians would have been expected to serve um, ordinarily, all the free Athenians. But um, he he wasn't making the profession of being a soldier or a captain or a general. Um, maybe all that means is he hadn't been given any official post. Um. One other detail before we move on, I know mm. we got to move on, but I don't know if it'll be important for the future or not, but I think it's important that, um, so Xenophon says in the next sentence in, in 10, parenthetical 10 on page 98, that he was deceived. But then he seems to change the incentive structure. So the incentive structure earlier was the friendship of Cyrus and whatever might come along with that, whether it's an education under a great man, whether it's um, riches. But then the incentive structure changed because they all learned that the campaign is against the king. And then Xenophon adds himself very explicitly and deliberately to those who felt shame and continued on those grounds. He says they feared the journey. This is the bottom of the page and were unwilling because once they found out that the thing that the expedition Cyrus's expedition was against his brother, the king, the men who were there feared the journey and were unwilling. But the majority followed along out of shame both before each other and before Cyrus, Xenophon too was one of these. Mm -hmm. And so there's now a shame element that neither he nor Socrates conceivably could have predicted. And I wonder what things are, are being turned on in Xenophon's philosophic psychology at this moment. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? And so his, and this, I wonder if this might not then play into what Jeff's opening question was about, which is this dream and then this, this realization that it's me, that I'm the man who is here to do this. And I'm, I'm, I'm ashamed, <laughs> you know, that I'm here in a way. And so I just wonder, I, I can't make sense of it, but I think these things are all coming together in a way that's there for us to un unpack. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in fact, I'm inclined to, to suggest that the experience of shame or at least Xenophon's willingness to say that he was motivated by shame in that period when they knew that Cyrus was going against the king um, is a um, ratification or an endorsement of Socrates' judgment that the noble was motivating uh, Xenophon and his desire to go in the first place. Because my yeah. sense of the feeling of shame is that the people who most feel it uh, are the people who are most concerned with noble things. Yeah. Right? And they don't want to prove um, unworthy in front of those things. And Cyrus might have been one of those things. 
Yeah. Right. But it's it's interesting that he doesn't learn that lesson. At least that's not the end of the lesson because mm. then his reaction is not to be like, well, I screwed up and that's shame. Now I know it's, I'm now going to recover yeah. the noble deed and I'm going to be the man. Like I'm, you know, right. like I'm going to lead these guys out. Me, yeah. a nobody. I'm not even a soldier. You yeah, know. Yeah. So anyway. Yeah. Well, do we want to talk about the dream next then? I, I definitely want to because this did nothing for me. Okay. <laughs> because well, then you we start recording. <laughs> no, no. Before we started recording, you guys were talking about the dream. And I'm like, yeah, I remember that. But what? Huh? Uh, well, this is right after it in 11. You know, it's just a, it's just a paragraph. It's, mm-hmm. you know, when they were, they were so at a loss. And this comes back to what Jeff was saying about everybody just laid down. Um, after you know the situation they're in, when they were so at a loss, he was distressed along with the others, and he was unable to sleep. Still getting a little sleep, he saw a dream. It seemed to him there was thunder, and a bolt fell upon his father's house, and from this whole house was ablaze. Extremely afraid, he woke up immediately, and he judged the dream to be in one way good, because when he was in the midst of hardships and danger, he seemed to see a great light from Zeus. But in another way, became the dream because the dream seemed to come from Zeus, the king, and the fire blazed bright in a circle. He was also afraid that he might not be able to get out of the country of the king and might be shut in on all sides by various difficulties. Mm-hmm. So what are, you, what are you guys drawing that's, you know, kind of giving you the little bit of, oh, this is important, uh, aside from, I love a good dream sequence just as much as anybody, but... Uh, it wasn't immediately apparent that this was a, one of the keys to kind of unlock Xenophon's motivation and, and the theme of the book. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe the first thing that jumps out at me is that the dream seems like a bad dream, <laughs> right? In other words, you know, uh, given his situation and then given the content of the dream, it looks like the interpretation should be, this is terrible, I'm doomed, Right. So maybe if you went from shame, you know, to now it's just fear, right? Terror. I'm, I'm going to die. Uh, I and all the Greeks are going to die. But he it looks like he um, judged. It doesn't say he woke up immediately, he, but he judged soon afterwards that the dream was partly good. And so this, for me, indicates um Xenophon's power of interpreting what the gods might tell him. In other words, his ability to to interpret the answer to the question, for example, should I go to Persia? If the answer were no, would he have gone to Media first and then prayed there to see if he should continue on to Persia, right? I mean, so there's there's some sense in which um, it doesn't look like he's submissive to this dream, just like he's not submissive to the oracle or to Socrates' advice. Right? That's the first thing that leaps out at me because the interpretation that could be good because the thunder is um, a great light from Zeus is a, is a pretty strained interpretation. Um, so that's, that's where I begin. Were there other things that you guys noticed about this? Um, well, that it's the house of his father. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I would have, I would have interpreted this as having something to do with my father mm-hmm. <laughs> or, and that's just like not even in the thing, you know? Yeah. Um, and that this could be in some, maybe it's connected to Socrates and the fathers and like the fact that Xenophon went to Socrates. I don't know, but I, you know, these things are in such close proximity that you wonder about the absence of Xenophon's father on the previous page. And then you see that his, his father's house was struck and his father is still not mentioned. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know how to make the connection. Um, but I wonder why he's not like, 
you know, either I'm going to die or my father, my father is in trouble in Athens or, or something, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. it seems like something like, you know, what is useful from this? You know, what, how can I take this and use it for something? And I think that that is maybe a little bit of foreshadowing of what we see after this, right? Because he takes what is useful in terms of knowledge of how the Persians have treated the Greeks so far and, and makes it useful to explain to the Greeks how they only have one, one choice, that there mm-hmm. are no other choices. It is, we have got to be, you know, even more Greek than the Persians think, think us Greek now in terms mm-hmm. of order and discipline, but also democracy, which is super weird. Um, but they vote all the time after this. There's, there's at least three votes, two vote, two, three votes on, you know, who's, who's going to be in charge. Like he sends them back and says, select leaders. And I'm assuming that's done by vote. And mm-hmm. then there's two other votes. I think that Xenophon, you know, has when he's giving his speech. Um, but he's making use of everything that's happened before mm-hmm. to carry the point that he once carried, which mm-hmm. is, this is our only option. Mm-hmm. And so we see that too. This, this, I agree with Jeff that this is a dark, foreboding dream. But he's like, no, no, signal from Zeus. We're good. <laughs> well, yeah, I like the formulation. This is our only option because I think it it might mean um, the dream might mean you can't go backwards, right? There's no returning to an earlier state. Maybe that's what the father's house means, right? The father's house presumably is in Athens. Right, it's presumably the inheritance that Xenophon would get if he just stayed at home and was good and uh, rested on what others had been able to accumulate that he was going to inherit. So it looks like it's a thought that Zeus is saying, you know, the things that were in your past life aren't yours any longer. You can't count on them. Uh, the only way is forward, you're on your own. And that might even include Socrates. There might be some sense in which the father's house is the literal father's house. It is the fatherland, Athens, and it is Socrates. Um, And, you know, those things are cut off from Xenophon now. Uh, He has to do his own thing. Um, So, yeah, I'm I'm persuaded by the direction we're headed in. Um, His interpretation, by the way, of the his bad interpretation is is not that they're all going to die. It's just that they'll be stuck in uh, Persia, surrounded, right? We learn later there are all kinds of subject peoples that the king can't kill but are stuck in Persia, right? So it looks like the worst case scenario in in his interpretation of the dream is they'll have to live there. Um, And by the way, there are some abandoned cities that are very heavily fortified and defensible that get mentioned a couple chapters later, right? That they just could have occupied. Yeah. So it's it's a really... um, optimistic dream given the way most of the Greeks are um, dealing with their situation yeah and then I mean I don't know I mean the other question sort of the meta question is is Xenophon the kind of man who would take advice from a dream I mean I, I wonder if he's trying to make some among us be like come on you didn't this didn't even happen you're just yeah. you know like I could see, I mean, I want to believe it happened just because I love the adventure of the story. But on the other hand, I'm like, you know, Xenophon's not the kind of guy who's going to have a dream and then like, you know, yeah. <laughs> shape his future on the basis of a dream. And then, but the, and then the, the other thing that strikes me immediately after the dream, Jeff, you read this in your opening question is, I've read a lot of Xenophon and he's not Mr. 
obvious, you know, like he doesn't, he really, and that's what I love about him. And, and the way that he formulates in parenthetical 13, he's like, one can consider what sort of thing it is to see such a dream through the events that happened after the dream. That, that gives me no insight into what sort of thing it is to see such a dream. Mm-hmm. And I don't even, you know, and so I, I think he does that because that sounds so, I mean, I think he wants you to notice it because mm. the phrasing is mm-hmm. so um, removed, even from him. He, he could say, and then I thought that the dream, you know, and I, but he doesn't say that. He says, one can consider. And so he's trying to get you to do something. And so what do you guys think? What sort of thing is it to see such a dream through the events that happen after? Well, well, first off, I love when authors kind of write something and then make you pause mm. on purpose. Um, like I just, I'm reading Joseph Conrad's The Secret Agent just for fun because I've oh, never, I've never read it before. Nice. Um, <laughs> and you know, we've done two Conrad short stories on the pod, but I'd never read The Secret Agent, and partly just because I hated the title. I'm like, I'm not reading this. <laughs> this is a dumb title. Um, I'm, I'm not, this is, did Conrad sell out and write a Robert Ludlum thriller because he was short on cash? I'm not reading this, but a friend of mine recommended it. And there's a, there's a very long kind of, uh, incredibly complex quasi Marxist anarchist kind of diatribe. And then, and, and I read it three times and then I turned the page and the interlocutor is, you know, said, he had to play that back in his head three times. <laughs> and I'm like, I just did that. Like, oh, Conrad, you are good job. Like, so it's, it's, it's being aware of what your reader is going through. And I think reading yeah. about a dream would cause you to go, wait, huh? And then have to go, how would I react to that? And then the next sentence is, now one would think, how would you react to that if you had a dream like that? And you're like, I was thinking that, Xenophon. Um, so I, yeah, so I, I agree that it does give you that moment of pause, but I do think that, you know, as much as I'm not, you know, a woo woo kind of guy, uh, you know, dreams can affect you emotionally in, in a very profound way. I, I was wondering as we we're talking about this, if there were any dream sequences in any of Plato's works, if there was ever a Socrates, you know, telling about a dream or something like that. Mm-hmm. Because there was, this would be an awesome callback if, if yeah. you did. Um, well, there is. I mean, there's a dream in the Phaedo where Socrates claims that he has a dream that he was told to um, uh, practice music and get good at it, right? And this is when he's in prison about to be executed. And so he says, yeah, he's been trying to set the fables of Aesop to music, right? And then, of course, there's a famous passage in the Republic where Socrates talks about all the sorts of things that can happen in dreams. You kill your mother and you... Uh, sleep with your father or wait, no, you you kill your father and sleep with your mother, right? I mean, but uh, people commit all kinds of outrages in dreams. And the question is, what does that mean for our waking life? Are those real experiences? um, Or are they dismissible because that's not reality when we're sleeping? Uh, Yeah, dreams, dreams, I think, um, if, if they happened, if they're not invented, are real, right? Even though what's in the dream doesn't literally happen. Um, and the thing I'm inclined to point out is uh, Xenophon dreamed because he was asleep. He was asleep because he wasn't as upset as the other Greeks, right? But the dream upset him and woke him up and started him moving, right? And then the rest is thinking. 
Yeah. Yeah. No, I like that. Yeah. Um, so from the dream, now we get action, right? Yeah. We get, or at least, or at least we get dialectic and, and it, and it's, and it's pointing towards action, you yeah. know, which I like because Xenophon doesn't, you know, just get everybody and say, here's what we're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, he's still kind of asking questions of his interlocutors in terms of, you know, what they should do and, and not putting himself forward as saying like, here's what we need to do and giving a very firm knife hand. Mm-hmm. It's, it's still dialoguing with his fellow Greeks to figure out the best way. And then again, with the voting, mm-hmm. the voting still blows my mind mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, how to run a military. Well, and one thing that impressed me about this section, what happens after the dream is its structure, right? There are three main audiences. There are Proxenus' captains, so the people Xenophon would have been close to. And then there are, I think it's all the captains, and then it's all the troops, right? So he's working from an inner circle out until he gets the whole army. And he says different things in each case, right? Like the first speech to the inner core is all about the good things they're going to get if um, now that they can have a free hand in dealing with the Persians, right? They're contesting openly with the Persians. Then the second speech is, is more about noble things. And there's that business about the sneeze and uh, Zeus's approval, right? And then the third speech is about how safe they're going to be, right? And they're the same three things that Xenophon was going to ask about in his prayer, I think, when he goes to the oracle, right? In other words, the thing that he builds has the same tripartite structure as the interest that he indicated when he said, oh, yeah, I'll go to the Oracle and I'll, I'll ask, right? That, I, I don't know how to flesh that out, but that skeleton seems really important to me. I think it's also interesting that he's, which is the speech where he speaks the most about piety? Mm. Is that the one to, to the troops where yeah. he talks all about the... He talks about uh, the gods and the ancestors. Yeah. Right. When he's like, "Oh, your ancestors actually did some stuff that were even harder than this." Mm-hmm. You're not gonna make, you know. <laughs> I because I I'm reminded when he's talking about piety about you know Clearchus's approach, and how Clearchus had a similar kind of very pious um, speech and a very kind of pious approach, um, and I'm wondering if Xenophon isn't kind of watching that as it's happening and going, "Oh, that seems to be working." Um, mm-hmm. And then, not not to skip too far ahead, but there's the part where um, he dresses really well, mm-hmm. and and that reminded me a great deal of the the la- the last part of the education of Cyrus, yeah. right? Where where Cyrus in the education um, initially, you know, is very plain, and the Persian, you know, the Persians don't. Uh, they don't, you know, use sauce with their meats, and they don't dress elaborately. But then by the end, Cyrus is kind of uh, he's 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 gotten a bedazzler, and he's mm-hmm. not afraid to use it. Uh, and so now we're in the same situation here, where Xenophon is pointing out that he uh, is dressing really well. I'm trying to remember where that is, but it's it's basically. Yeah, he puts on his finest armor. Yeah, he puts on his <laughs> finest. Yeah, mm-hmm. puts on his finest armor, and it's a little bit. Uh, um, <clears throat> yeah, here it's a uh, seven two seven. Uh, after this, Xenophon stood up, having equipped himself for war as nobly as he could, for he believed that if the gods should grant victory, the noblest adornment was fitting for being victorious. But if there should be a need for his life to come to an end. 
He believed it was right that considering himself worthy of the most noble things or arms, he meets his ends in these noble arms. And then he begins his speech, and this is, is this the second speech or the third speech? I think, I, think I was calling second. this the third, maybe. This but... is the third. Yeah. Um, no, this is the second. Oh, yeah. Second one. This yep, second speech. Yep, good. Yeah. But it's interesting. I, I like how that was brought up, uh, especially because it's after we hear from the Boeotian, right? Okay. And, 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 and this is kind of like a little thing, but I, I really wanted to bring it up because um, this, in the first, this is in the first speech. Uh, you have Apollonides who spoke Boeotian as his dialect. And he basically says, like, let's make a deal with the king. Um, and he's very quickly kind of shut down by Xenophon, who interrupts him. Like, for Zen it says Xenophon interrupted him. Uh, and, and it's just like, are you not? He, the, the king has lied to us. The king impaled his brother and cut off his hand and head mm -hmm. and, like, hung up his body for everybody to see. If that's how he's going to treat his brother, imagine how he's going to treat us. And then there's the, also the note that the Boeotian pierced his ears like the Lydians. Mm -hmm. And that just got me thinking, and it's just like a little bit for the audiences, how uh, incredibly homogenous we look in the military, how we try to remove all of these differences that we mm -hmm. could possibly perceive because we're very tribal animals and somebody that's not in your tribe who looks different, who speaks different, is immediately going to be less trustworthy than somebody that's got the same stupid haircut as we all have yeah. and is wearing the same clothes and all these things. And so I wonder how much this person that speaks Boeotian dialect and is wearing earrings and everybody's like, who invited this guy? <laughs> Which just reminded me a lot when I was in Iraq and like the SEALs would show up for like a mission briefing and everybody's like, Jesus, get a haircut. Put your put your boot blouses on. Like you no, shut up. You have nothing important to say until you get until you get a haircut. And they might have had something important to say, but we didn't want to hear it because they had long hair and didn't like blouse their boots so we were yeah. just like no whatever you have to say is not important yeah yeah um, let's bring that up as an interesting little that that it was a boeotian that you know pierced his ears as the person that's providing a different perspective yeah and how we react to that as humans you know, you can see the the problem for cyrus's expeditionary force right it was half persian half greek and then the greeks are divided between the athenians and the lacedaemonians and there are greeks who are more friendly to the persians and greeks who are less friendly to persians and there are barbarian archers and right the whole thing is a mess militarily speaking right because uh they don't trust one another Right? They don't look like one another. They don't have this long-term cohesion. So yeah, uh, it's going to be hard to keep them together. Yeah, but then what happens is he begins to, you know, Xenophon kind of decides to seize the initiative, right? Mm -hmm. He's not, he's not going to react to the Persians anymore. He's going to make the Persians react to him. He's going to try to use speed which Cyrus did the same thing. So they start marching at night after um, adjusting their tactics and their formations. Mm -hmm. uh, they're like, the goal is to get away as quick as we can. So let's start walking at night because you know the Persians hate the night, do not like operating at night, and, and camp six stadia away from the Greeks so they won't be attacked at night. Mm -hmm. I wonder if that's foreshadowing too because part of me is just like, oh yeah, just no, go after them. Um, <laughs> He says some ridiculous things. I wonder what you guys make of it. Like he'll he'll tell he'll tell them 
you know, we could conquer the country, like, and we could get all the good things. And I'm sitting there thinking, that's insane. You mm -hmm. can't conquer anything and get all the, you'll be lucky to get out with your clothes on your back. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so it's just amazing to me how he, he says these things, which, I mean, from the reader's point of view, you're like, you know, absolutely not. Uh, and these guys, these guys believe he's made, you know, he's made them believe. And then there's even that one point where he says, you know, we, Hey, we could even stay here. And there's all these tall, beautiful women and we could just be, you know, we could just be having a, but we better not do that because, you know, that would, we'd be lazy and we want to go back home and tell all the Greeks, look at all the good stuff out here. You guys are poor because you're choosing to be poor. Let's go get all the good stuff out here. And so he just, his rhetorical strategy is sort of comical on the one hand, but then by the end, I'm starting to believe. And I'm like, you know, hey, mm -hmm. let's go get it. And and one thing I noticed about, about Zenith, because Jeff, you were talking about, and I think, you know, maybe Brian, you alluded to this as well. If Xenophon is going to lead, then he's going to lead in a Socratic way. Well, what mm -hmm. does that mean? Like, mm -hmm. you know, what is that? What's different about the way Xenophon would lead? Because that's the lesson I want to learn. Mm -hmm. Like if there's some philosophic way to lead and to, to, to face men and to motivate men and to balance that with your own desires and your own uh, intentions, what is that? One of the things that struck, that stuck out to me here and, and, and you know, I always I can't help but compare the book to the education of Cyrus. After mm -hmm. all, their titles only have one word difference mm -hmm. in, the, in the two titles. Is that Xenophon says to the guys constantly, uh, he uh, not constantly, but at least two or three times, um, whoever desires to see his family members, let him remember to be a brave man. It's mm -hmm. about your family members. And then he says, you know, we could stay here, but we should go back to our family members and our family members, our family members. If you recall in the education of Cyrus, Cyrus was like, whoever has family members is not loyal to me. Mm -hmm. And therefore the eunuchs are the most loyal yeah. and, you know, no family members. And then, and then there was a scene with, um, with Tigranes, his wife, where it was like his family, she loved him more than Cyrus. I don't know if you guys remember all this, but Xenophon like points in the direction of these attachments as motivators for war, rather than trying to say, these attachments can exist. I'm going to try to artificially remove them. And so I, I just see Xenophon working with human nature, working with the way men think and what they want, working with their longings rather than trying to change their longings. Um, and, and this is one example of it. And I think there are probably others and, and will be others. But I don't know what you guys make of that or what did you see any places where there's a kind of Socratic twist to the way Xenophon is looking at men, talking to men. And leading men. Right. Go ahead, Jeff. Well, I was just going to say that the one thing that struck me is that um, even though Xenophon is, as a matter of fact, the um, principal cause and therefore the prince of the Greek army, right, and of its uh, rebirth, he doesn't try to be the only one, right, who's there identified as a leader. If anything, he's surrounding himself with allies and people who are. Um, going to work on his behalf. And uh, he doesn't um, uh, eliminate all com competitors and kind of isolate himself and elevate himself the way Cyrus seemed to do with some rapidity. Um, so that might be another contrast, not just using the nature of the people he's leading, but also using the um, uh, naturally fitted allies around him. Yeah. I think another piece of that is there are two, there's two pieces potentially. One is give them something to do, hmm. right? They're all laying on the ground waiting for death. 
they need something to do. And so especially as Greeks and a big chunk of Athenians hanging around and talking and voting is something they know how to do. Mm. And it would bring a sense of comfort uh, and distract them from imminent death, which, you know, is nice. Uh, and the other piece is, uh, you know, in the kind of good order and discipline uh, that he tries to instill by setting up a good leadership structure and also decentralizing command, right, which is kind of the opposite of Cyrus to a degree, mm-hmm. um, so that the troops are loyal to each other, you know, and are more worried about, you know, what we talked about earlier, the shame, right? The shame of letting their comrades down and that they're more afraid of that than the enemy, right? Like there's a, there's an absolutely glorious, like really small scene in Generation Kill, which is that HBO oh, miniseries yeah. that came that out a good in the early aughts. Yeah. It's a good miniseries. I actually met the author randomly um, on a berm in Moyoc, North Carolina during a terrorism training camp that I went to, which is a fun story, but it's too long. Um, but there's a, there's a, there's this, there's this great scene in generation kill where they're in Kuwait. And, uh, if you guys, you know, might remember some of this and, and the, being in the Marine Corps at the time, we, it was a huge issue for us, which was the chemical weapons kind of fear. And we were, you know, just getting trained in our mop gear and our gas masks all the time. And when, you know, a lot of folks, I wasn't in Kuwait, um, for the initial invasion, but I had a lot of friends that were, and it was just a constant kind of like, holy shit, if this, you know, we're sitting here on these giant bases where that everybody knows where we're at. Uh, and if dudes just decides to shoot a few chemical weapons at us, like we're done and there's nothing you can do. You're powerless in that circumstance. So there's this wonderful scene where the Sergeant major of first recon after he's like running around constantly yelling at people about the proper where to proper way to wear a boonie cover which are these really weird hats that we have that we never wear except, you know, in Iraq. Um, and the sorry, he's just, he is absolutely like lighting everybody up that he comes across. That's an Alista guy about the proper way to, way to wear a boonie cover. Uh, even though there is no proper way to wear a boonie cover. And then about three episodes in, he's got his gunnery sergeants around him and he's like, remember fellas, keep on about the boonie covers. They ain't worried about them chemical weapons. They're just worried about their hat being on wrong. You know? And you're like, Oh, that's brilliant. Like yeah, that's yeah. terrific. Um, so replacing that fear is, uh, of the enemy through whatever means necessary, whether yeah. it's a different kind of fear or whether it's shame or what Shiloh was talking about, whether it's love of family and wanting to get back to that or whether it's tall, beautiful Median women, it's replace it with anything but we're about to die mm-hmm. and you're going to give folks a lot more opportunity to survive than if they're worried about chemical weapons getting shot at them or Persian horsemen you know, coming into the night and killing them all. Yeah. The one thing I would say about that is it seems to me like um, the prospect of gaining good things is the replacement for fear in the case of a few members of the Greek military. Um, Anger is a big replacement of fear for many members of the Greek military, but fear is irreplaceable for most of the members of the Greek military. In other words, I think the last... um, what I was calling the third speech, the most general speech to the audience, uh, with its focus on safety, I think still has to um, employ some fear. Uh, The flip side of a concern with safety is the thought that you're not safe if you don't do X, Y, or Z, right? 
So um, it might be that in the best cases, you can swap, swap out fear for something more productive, but not in every case. Yeah, I like that. Um, we were actually a little over our time. <laughs> we talked. <laughs> we, we talked. Yeah, we talked a lot. We didn't really even hit everything in there, but we got the three speeches. We got the dream. Um, so probably a good, a good point to, to wrap up. Um, for our close listeners of the pod that have listened to some of our past pods um, and are waiting for the Iliads to drop, we're actually going to postpone uh, dropping those. We're going to keep cranking on the Anabasis. So um, you're going to get the, this Anabasis episode, then you'll have another one shortly on its heels, and then we'll be releasing the Iliad episodes uh, a little bit later on. I'll also plug that we now have a voicemail that you can call if you'd like to give us a ring, and you can just leave a message and say, hey, I have a question about something. Uh, so that number is 703-596-2027, 703-596-2027. Give us a call if you have a question about what we uh, are currently reading or what we've read in the past or just have anything you want to say to the Combat and Classics crew. Uh, you can also find us on the socials or at Combat and Classics on all that stuff. And uh, you can follow us and keep track of what we're up to uh, and what we're doing. But with that, I'll say thanks to Jeff and thanks to Shiloh. Appreciate you guys. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. And uh, tune in in a, in a few more weeks for some more, now the descent of not Cyrus. Uh, so we'll work on that screenplay. We'll work on a better title for it, but uh, <laughs> we're, we're, we're on the descent now. So thanks, fellas. Yeah. Take care.